welcome everybody. This is Dr. Daniel Van Ingham with this week's parenting podcast. I've got a special treat for everyone. I am uh, doing our first interview with Team Parenting Doctors psychologist Dr. Patricia Price. So she is on the air with us here today. Um, so welcome, Patty. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. I'm just going to do a quick introduction of you, okay? Um, so, um, Dr. Price, I'm sorry for a few noises. Uh, Dr. Price is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Rochester, Minnesota. She specializes in the treatment of eating disorders, anxiety and depression in children, teens, and young adults. Dr. Price has an interest in implementing family-based therapies, um, and she's she's just excellent at what she does. Uh, she's done inpatient work, outpatient work. She's worked at the Minnesota Department of Corrections, working with female inmates, um, she is the author of a children's picture book, No More Screen Time. And um, I know you, Dr. Price, you're concerned about the overuse of screens and particularly amongst the youth. And yes. um, and I know that's a big issue um, that I would like to really get into extensively with you another time. I know today we're going to focus on eating disorders which is one of your specialties, and you know so much about it. So I'm so excited that you're uh, part of Team Parenting Doctors, and you have so much to offer. So welcome, Dr. Price. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So let's – great. So let's jump right into it Um, because I know our audience, uh, they're very interested in disordered eating and – what issues to to look out for. How about you start out by just telling us some of your experiences and um, you can sort of guide the way here in letting us get to know you and your specialty area here. Sure. So, you know, I became interested in working with eating disorders, uh, you know, as I started my psychology career, um, it was pretty – obvious what I knew I should specialize in. Um, and you know, when I was, when I was 13 and 14, I struggled with my own, um, I had a a pretty severe bout with anorexia that age after a friend of mine, um, was killed in, in a accident. And, um, I kind of went, went into this depressive state, which kind of resulted in, um, my own experience with an eating disorder and you know, that, that was kind of the, uh, the theme of my entire high school and some of my college years even. Um, and so, you know, with, with all the personal experience that I had in and out of treatments and the various forms of eating disorders, um, you know, I always had an interest in going into psychology and boy, I wanted to, uh, maybe use, what I had gone through my myself to benefit other people going through, um, the same thing once I did go on and go to grad school. Um, and you know, what's amazing to me is how much eating disorder treatment has changed and, uh, evolved since 1988 when, when I experienced treatment for the first time. Um, and it's, it's really exciting because, you know, back then, 
Oh, uh, you know, it was such a new field and no one really knew how to handle eating disorders. And, um, since about the late nineties, um, there, there have been really great treatments that are really effective if implemented correctly. Um, and, and if the eating disorder is caught early enough and, um, the whole eating disorder treatment field has actually been quite turned upside down since the late eighties, early nineties, um, till today. Dr. Price, um, when you say caught early enough, what are some things that families, um, should know about, um, what do you what mean to by, look for? yeah, what to look for and also how early, you know, I mean, ideally, um, early is caught within the first three months and actually taken care of, uh, quickly, you know, parents being right on top of, uh, seeing what was, what's going on. Um, but I mean, really within the first two years of onset is, is still considered early. Uh, okay. and the, yeah, unfortunately the course of these illnesses can, if, if they're caught early, they can actually be treated and eliminated and not, you know, the kid can have zero, uh, zero, you know, lasting effects of the eating disorder. Um, if it's not caught early and if, you know, for example, there's unfortunately a lot of people who might claim to specialize in eating disorders or have that on their profile online, that that's one of their expertise. Um, you know, and what I see a lot of times is, um, parents going kind of half-heartedly into these treatments for their kids and, you know, realizing it's not working. Um, and you know, they're six years down the road and, and they're still, their kids still having trouble. Um, and then, and then they bring them to the, to a place that really does specialize in eating disorders. But at that point it's, it's still reversible and it's still, um, there's always a chance of full recovery with eating disorders. It's just much more difficult as, as time goes on, um, to have that be the case. Um, what percentage have you seen Dr. Price, um, where you clients, um, teens and, and young adults do have zero lasting effects. And did you experience that in your own life? I, I did. I, unfortunately the, the treatment at that time was, um, pretty lousy. For example, uh, you know, the first two to three weeks that I was getting treatment, I was actually not allowed to speak with my parents, even on the telephone. Wow. Um, now this was 1990. So, um, they, at that time believed parents were heavily involved in, um, causing, this mindset of an eating disorder and they really wanted, they called it a parentectomy at that time. And they believed that they had to kind of take the kid fully out of the parent, the parent's environment to treat the eating disorder. Nowadays, the parents are set on a pedestal as the, the greatest factor, even greater than right therapist, um, you know, in, in guiding treatment for their kid. So that's what I meant by like how much it's turned around. Right. Um, but really if parents are both involved and 
I say that because, um, you know, what I see is when both parents are on the same page, even if they're divorced or separated, um, if they're on the same page with this issue and with what we're doing in therapy, I see it, you know, 90% maybe of kids who are caught early, um, turning it around within a six month period, um, to the point where really they go on and live normal adolescent child, you know, adolescence, um, eating disorder free. And it's beautiful when that happens. It's just amazing and awesome. And, you know, the families are just so thankful and, um, and the kids are too. So it's, and then I, and then I also see parents who struggle to implement this. And there are cases with family-based therapy, there are situations where a family is just not a good candidate for family-based therapy. Um, and that's, that's, it's, it's great if you have a therapist who sees that early and can recommend another course, for example, residential care. Um, so, I, you know, the, yeah, I love, go ahead. I love what you're saying, Dr. Price, about how the parents can be the greatest positive influence in reversing this condition. You know, this goes right along with, in my book, You Are Your Child's Best Psychologist, Seven Keys to Excellence in Parenting, which I'm proud to say that you uh, endorsed. Uh, you know, I added Chapter 8, um, and the key thing, when do parents seek professional help? I added Chapter 8 after Chris Vi, you remember Dr. Vi um, <laughs> yep. at St. Thomas. He said, you've got to have something in there. And he didn't, actually didn't like the title, uh, which is uh. kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so I added Chapter 8 because there are many times when parents do need to seek professional help. It, it can't be all on the parents. Um, but when I travel and speak, one of the things that I he hear from mental health professionals is we need more from parents. Um, but in my little section, uh, when where I wrote, when do parents seek professional help? And, and there are many examples, uh, whether a child is, um, you know, experiencing a depression, whether they're having difficulty coping with divorce, uh, or a dad passing or mom passing or signs of in an eating disorder is one of the things that I mentioned, um, that definitely we need to seek professional help um, but it's so interesting then for you to say, uh, then the professional clinician, the therapist, uh, points to the parents as being, sounds like what you're saying is the most positive factor in reversing this condition and possibly achieving zero lasting effects with the use of an ev evidence-based treatment. Absolutely. I mean, the use of the evidence-based treatment is is also key. I mean, parents do, parents do play a big role, but they definitely come into my office, not knowing, not knowing how they can do it. And, you know, it's, it's the, it's my job to teach them how they can help their kid. And, you know, there's, there have even been studies recently done with, um, family-based therapy where, um, only the parents meet with the therapist. The kid doesn't, the, the eating disordered kid doesn't even come into therapy. So it's basically, you know, 
if it were me, it would be me and meeting with the parents, teach, guiding them on how to go about saving their child. Um, so definitely parents, parents can play a key role. Um, there's other ways to get through an eating disorder without the support of parents, of course, but, uh, but the best evidence shows that when they're on board, it can make a world of difference. What are some of the, um, if we could take it to the next step and I know you, you, uh, individualize it and it's based on circumstances and the individual person, but what would be some of the nuts and bolts pieces, kind of general guidelines that you give to most parents as far as bringing about healthy changes? Well, the, probably the biggest key is, is to think about, um, you know, the parents almost serving as the staff of an inpatient residential treatment would, um, but at home and in the privacy of their own home. And what, what, they're, uh, what they're tasked at doing is provide, they actually plate the meals for the kids. Um, like, let's say I have a kid who's um, 20, 20 pounds underweight. Um, the parents come in terrified, usually, uh, not knowing how to handle it, not knowing what they can do. Should they be pushing food? The kid's saying that she can't possibly eat or she's going to throw up. Um, they don't know if there's a health issue going on. Um, you know, generally the kids have basically taught their, taught their bodies to not expect food. Right. So when they're asked to eat, they suddenly feel ill. Right. Um, and the parents are scared. They're like, gosh, what do we do? Do we push it? Do we, you know, do we do a hands-off approach because we don't want to be, um, making matters worse and really, um, what they need to do. And what I like to have the kid hear me say they have to do is they have to basically treat the kid temporarily just like they did when they were a toddler, right? They need to plate the meal. They need to have expectations that the food is going to go into their stomach. They need to be monitored um, to make sure they're not going to the bathroom afterwards and vomiting. Um, But it's, it's a high, it's a tall order for the parents to, to hear that. And they're usually a little bit terrified, but it's very empowering to, to, for them to hear, no, you can do this parents. You can, you can do this. You can sit with your daughter at breakfast and put out the amount of food that, you know, a teenage girl should be eating for breakfast and you can have consequences if she doesn't eat it. And, you know, I think when I first heard about this therapy, I was pretty, my eyebrows were raised, right? Like consequences, like really, what kind of consequences are you going to give a kid? But actually, uh, you know, things like uh, gymnastics, for example, if a kid is active in gymnastics saying, look, unless you're eating this meal and you're sitting here with me for 45 minutes after the meal, um, you're off the gymnastics team. And of course, Parents are, again, terrified to do that, right? And it's my job to be the cheerleader for the parents to say, no, this has to be the way it is or your kid could die. Um, you don't have an option in this. You, it, you have to draw the line in the sand. And kids respond to that. I mean, 
even the the kids that you'd think are the most have their heels most dug in and they have the most control over their parents of you know your your typical teenager who's who's very defiant at some level they break you know when there are strict boundaries and i've i've been in trainings where they talk about the the treatment team including the parents basically has to like if you think about this the idea that they're holding hands together around the patient and they're not going to give the kid any wiggle room they're all on the same page though the doctor that you know usually i get an md involved um they have to be on the same page as me as both parents and and even the siblings in the household um and when you have a full fence of support that's there's no breaks in the fence around the kid the kid does well um this reminds me this reminds me if i may jump in quick um go ahead you mentioned consequences. One of the challenges when we are dealing with parents who have video game addicts, say at the age of 12, yep. and when we when they try to incorporate video game limits, it is so hard because they didn't implement limits at age 8. And so now yes. they have three, four years of yes, very much so. yep. <laughs> no limits. And now how challenging it is. Uh, you know, to incorporate limits now at age 12. Recently, I said to a mom who was was pointing out how aggressive her son was being and she seemed helpless and did not know what to do. And at one point I said, go in, get that video game system and throw it in the dumpster. Why does it have control over this family system? Right. And, right. <laughs> and uh but you're right. Parents parents can get a little bit nervous. Like, wow, is my kid gonna? What's she gonna do? Like, um, she can't be in gymnastics. That's gonna destroy her social life. Like, you know, um, there's there's this anxiety that I see in some parents, and and literally, it's so great when they do take the reins and say, "Hey, I can do this." Um, and, and the kid comes back to thank him for it, you know. How long does that phase of the food preparation, communicating expectation, and monitoring usually last, Dr. Price? Um, usually I encourage parents to do it almost up to the goal weight. Because um, really, with if you think about, I'm talking mainly today about anorexia and like, um, low weight, low weight bulimia patients. Um, you know, there's a different mindset or a different cap I have to put on with, with the binge eater population. Um, so I'll just stick with that cause I'm kind of on that course, but you know, I'm considering patients who are underweight when they come in and, um, Generally, when someone is underweight, uh, you don't, people don't give credit to how severely that affects brain functioning. So, um, what I always tell parents is, look, I can't work individually with your child until they're at their goal weight 
because it's it's almost a can working with an underweight and especially a severely underweight patient um, in any capacity is like working with a heroin addict that's sitting on my couch high on heroin. I mean, wow. literally their, their brain functioning is not there, right? So it's not going to help for them to have talk therapy and um, to, for me to say, hey, you need to go have three um, – three meals a day and three snacks a day. Uh, and you need to have this many food groups at each meal. And, you know, their parents are really in charge of them almost and maybe all the way up until they meet their goal weight. Um, and at that time, it's amazing to me because they're they're It's like speaking to a different person once they're at their goal weight than it was, you know, when the person was underweight. It's like they, t they tend to come out of their, you know, out of the hole, the pit of the eating disorder, and they are much more compliant. They're um, much more motivated to change. They have much better body image. So it's bizarre, but a kid who comes in at 20 pounds underweight will always think that they are fatter, quote unquote, fatter, right? than they will when they're actually at their goal weight. It, it doesn't make logical sense, right? But it's that's the problem with anorexia and bulimia and um, anytime the weight is screwed up. Um, like their brains are literally not working right. And um, and parents need to be told, like when, you're, when this kid is arguing with you, it's not your kid, it's, it's the eating disorder which has the grip on the kid who's fighting you so hard. And um, that really helps parents kind of like, you know, cope with the screaming and yelling that they're inevitably going to get um, when they implement this. Uh, and would, I always try to, I always try to get them to separate the eating disorder apart from their kid. Okay. Um, yeah. And view it as almost like this, like monkey on their back, their kid's back. And some families even name the eating disorder. Like, I don't know. Some use choice, choice swear words and stuff like that <laughs> to talk about the eating disorder by name. Um, yeah. But that really helps. So they, they, they call it some Michael the monkey <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> now, right. Now, what kinds of forms of resistance do you notice in parents? Like when you're asking them to um, – when they're dealing with a child who's very underweight, which is really affecting the brain functioning as you're pointing out. And, um, and so now they're being asked to prepare meals like, like a, you would with a toddler and uh, observe and communicate expectations and those things that you've mentioned – um, but then you're dealing with parents who are so busy, right? Yep. Uh, sometimes parents can go without having any family dinners, uh, which is, can, can cause problems for families. Parents are so in such a rush. Then you have the whole nutrition thing. You might have parents who are on keto plans, low carb plans and right. all kinds of, right. and this, well, you know, when I do these kinds of meals, this isn't consistent with what our family is going to do. So, so what are some of the forms of resistance 
that you have to help parents overcome? Oh, you know, um, most, you know, I really try to emphasize that, look, um, you need to make this a priority. Um, anorexia has a very high death rate. Um, and, and so I try to emphasize, look, if, if your kid just got diagnosed with cancer, you would change your schedule, um, to make sure that treatment happened. Uh, you would, um, you know, you, you'd go out of your way to make sure that the school provided help if that was necessary. Um, and I really, I really tell parents that if their kid is on any kind of special diet, and even if they are themselves, um, that, that, that needs to end until two years after full recovery. Um, and I get pushed back on that. Uh, I had one kid last year whose parents who had become vegan in the course of the anorexia. And um, the mom and dad came in and said, oh, you know, we're so proud of her for being so ethically minded and um, we don't want to step on her toes. And, you know, my first question was, how long has she been vegan? <laughs> and I uh, found out her veganism began six months after her anorexia began. Um, and my I said, I, I can't work with you unless she stops being vegan until she's up at, at a normal weight for two years. Um, and they ultimately left and didn't come back. Um, I worked with them like three times. and But, you know, it's, it's just you can't have that strict of a diet in the course of weight restoration. Um, most parents, though, that I work with are willing to set anything aside that's not medically necessary, right? If somebody's gluten intolerant, has celiac disease, of course you're not going to ask them to eat things that are bad for their health. But most parents that I work with are able to see the need to just, if parents are on a special weird diet, they set that aside in, in the time that their kid is recovering. Um, purely for the best interest of the kid. Um, but I do see pushback from parents who aren't really confident in what I'm saying. And they kind of look at me like I have three heads when I say, um, this is what you have to do. And I do have parents go get a second opinion. And nine times out of 10, they come back saying, okay, you were right. Um, but it is, it's, it's a lot to ask parents to take part in this treatment, right? Um, yeah, because a lot of times, does, even if ahead. we're talking about just simple, more simple problems, like an adjustment disorder with anxiety or depression or, you know, just kind of a season in their life, or what I often see are behavior problems, um, a lot of times parents just want to say, okay, here, you fix it. And when I sit right. down with parents and say, look, here are some of the s system issues that are maintaining this behavior or maintaining this avoidance or maintaining this, um, you know, whatever it is, um, parents are then being asked to change themselves and they just want to drop 
you know, the, the common joke for the therapist is parents just want to drop the client off, their kid off, and say, here, you fix this kid. Right. <laughs> right. But the kid then right. goes back to the some of the same unhealthy cycles. Right. The, I think the advantage that I have is, is the ability to say, look, this could be a three-month treatment course, and I could never see you again after three months, or it could be a 30-year course, and your kid can, can continue to see me for the next 30 years, um, and if they, if they stay living. Um, and that's a big motiva- motivator for, for parents. They go, crap. Um, if we do this right, it could be over in three months. And, you know, people take, it, it seems a little nuts maybe, but people even take time off from work, like a FMLA leave to do this right. Um, usually it doesn't, uh, interfere that much that they actually have to quit their job, but, or, or temporarily stop working. Um, but there are cases that, that that's what they do. Uh, and, and, you know, as I said earlier, family-based therapy if, is not for everyone. So, you know, families that literally cannot implement it the way it's supposed to be implemented, there's no shame in needing to put your kid in a residential program instead because, you know, your family isn't equipped to to do it the way of outpatient care. And so um, that might be some parents who travel a lot. Maybe yeah. they work for an airline. Or a high-conflict family. Um, you know, a high-conflict family, a family who with, you know, I see sometimes there's a family, uh, divorced parents where the kid is living half at dad's, half at mom's, dad's on board, mom's not, or vice versa. Um, you know, so the fence that I said has to go tightly around the patient is broken in some way. Um, or let's say they've got another child who is sucking up their resources and, and they just literally don't have the resources available to commit. And, you know, that happens. And there's there shouldn't be any shame in, in looking for a higher level of care at that point. So um, that might be like if you have a child with autism, with intellectual impairment, and they just seem to take up a lot of time. Now, so right. in these various examples, Dr. Price, where could a person – how would a person find um, a residential program? Uh, you know, I, I'm part of the Academy for Eating Disorders, um, and it's, uh, what is it? Let me look up the web address for the, you can Google the Academy for Eating Disorders. There's, um, those are the, the best of the best empirically supported treatment programs, um, in the world, worldwide, um, would be listed on that website. Uh, you know, most of the time, um, like in our in the state of Minnesota, there's two or three really good programs uh, that I refer to. Um, but you really have to search and you really have to ask the right questions. I actually have a section on my website. Uh, my website is uh, doctor just drpatriciaprice.com. I have a link um, about finding an expert. 
And it is a shame because a lot of, a lot of places, uh, will advertise that, you know, one of their things that they treat out of their 30 things that they treat are eating disorders. Um, and parents don't know what to look for, um, when they're looking for eating disorder treatment, but, uh, there are things specifically to ask and I have those on my website. Um, but really you want to look for the two, the two empirically supported treatments for eating disorders. And yes, there are only two, um, uh, very well-researched ones are family-based therapy. And sometimes that's called the Maudsley model. You might see it referred to as the Maudsley, Maudsley model because it was developed at the Maudsley Hospital in London. Um, or cognitive behavioral therapy enhanced is the other. That's when there's no family around to help with the treatment. That's the therapy. Um, and can people contact you to follow up? Uh, yes. Yep, absolutely. And for those of you in Minnesota, I know we have Minnesota listeners, uh, you can contact, again, Dr. Price at drpatriciaprice.com. That's drpatriciaprice.com. And her number is 507-237-8768. 507-237-8768. You can contact her with any further information uh, and a lot of these things um, that she's brought up. She'll be more than happy to help. Dr. Price, let me ask you this. What are the things that, um, so, so we have listeners who parents who may be listening and find this fascinating, but their, their kids don't have an eating disorder. Um, or they might, I guess the first question I have is I want to ask you, what are the things parents should look for? Signs of concern? Um, well, the, the more difficult one is to see, you know, there's generally when you go to a doctor's appointment, um, there should be a continuous course of staying on a growth curve. Um, so pediatricians generally plot your kid's growth on a growth curve. Um, not sadly, not all pediatricians are savvy about, um, reading growth curves in a way to pick up for eating disorders. But um, that's one thing you could look for is if your kid suddenly is dropping off their growth curve. Um, another, you know, pickier eating than they've had in the past, maybe cutting, you know, a big one would be cutting out certain food groups entirely. Um, fear of... Uh, eating incorrect food types. Um, a lot of times the food isn't as big of an, uh, like weight loss might be accidental as it was in my case. Like I kind of went into this mass depression after my friend died. Um, and it, it, the weight loss itself can actually kickstart an eating disorder. Um, but comments from others when you hear a coach or a teacher or a friend concerned about your kid's weight, oftentimes it's happened so gradually that you don't see it yourself. Um, but someone else might, uh, take those comments very seriously if they're showing concern. Um, 
you know, oftentimes a kid doesn't have enough energy to get through a day. And you might question, gosh, is this because she's underweight? It, it happens so slowly that a lot of times parents don't see it until it's pretty far gone. Um, and just an inability to eat around others uh, can sometimes be a, a sign. You know, if they want to be alone in the kitchen eating, um, don't want to sit down at family dinner and eat what the other family members are eating. Yeah. Well, that's, those are some great, um, thoughts for us to consider. Um, how are we doing on time? Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Okay. Um, so, so taking a step back and now big picture, um, and it is, it is so great to just be talking with you. Um, Dr. Price, I know you and I go way back. It's been a long time. Um, but uh, big picture, because I know that um, nutrition is a, a, a concern. And this was what I was going to ask before. Uh, parents who maybe they don't have, uh, there aren't eating disorders, not a concern, but certainly feeding their kids is a concern and an issue for most parents. And so do you have any general um, recommendations on um, – I, I know some things that come up sometimes is uh, a kid's being told you can't have any sugar, right? Maybe right. Uh, they've learned that the no sugar – the sugar is the new cocaine and, and or sh- sugar is the new cigarette and we're going to have no sugar in our household. And then you have on the other side when I grew up – in the 80s, everything was processed food. Everything was eating Oreos for breakfast and um, pizza for dinner. And uh, everything was fast food or processed. And um, and then we've had lots of changes over time with uh, what nutrition looks like and things have moved to organic. And I know this is a long conversation. All right. Um, and maybe we can do it. No, I, I, I think I know what you're asking. Um, and I, I would say there should be no food, no food that is a hundred percent off limits. Um, eating the, the, the eating disorder experts across the world absolutely cringe at any use of the word diet. Um, it's, it's horrifying for us to see things like, like Weight Watchers, for example, had a, had a summer special for teens. And, you know, I mean, that's a hundred percent job security for someone like me. Um, any restriction, I, I should, I should explain that, you know, one of the things that they've really discovered is it, they call it a trans diagnostic, um, view of eating disorders and that basically means that all eating disorders from the super super low weight anorexia patient highly restrictive uh anorexia patient all the way up to the seven seven or eight hundred pound morbidly obese individual who can't stop eating all day long um they're all related and they believe they believe that 
the number one indicator or the, the number one um, thing that they can lead all these eating disorders back to is restriction in some form. So restriction from, um, oh, let's say fruit snacks, right? Fruit snacks were completely off the table as a kid. Um, anything that's completely off the table, right, yeah. um, is, is a bad sign. So everything in moderation. And um, I, I personally, like, I know that the dietitians nowadays use the plate model for the, um, you know, to show what a well-rounded diet looks like. And we occasionally use dietitians in eating disorder treatment, not nearly as much so as they did in the past. Um, but really the food pyramid to me is really important for kids to understand. Like, uh, you know, it's okay to have everything that's on the food pyramid, including desserts, it just needs to be in the right proportion to the whole diet. Um, but all those things are important. And this, and the brain, the brain is best served by eating everything in moderation. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's, it's a horrible thing that there's all these diets that are so, you know, eat only meat. I have a friend who's, who, uh, who is currently on a, what he calls a carnivore diet. <laughs> I would like that one. <laughs> and he is convinced, and this, you know, person works at the Mayo Clinic, very well educated. Um, he's convinced that all the, all his body needs is meat. Um, and that if you're not getting enough vitamins and minerals, uh, like the the nutritionists of the world have it all wrong. You don't need fruits and vegetables. You don't need um, dairy products. All you need, if you're not getting enough vitamins and minerals, is more meat. You're just not eating enough meat. <laughs> you know, I, I just I just shake my head at that. But, but you know, he's a grown yeah. adult without an eating disorder. It's, it's disordered eating, but you know might not qualify as an eating disorder, but, um, that's so interesting that it, that a common core theme is bringing it back to restriction, that restriction is one of the key, the, the cause. Yeah. Right. You could, it definitely is. I mean, that, that is the, that is the, uh, string that weaves all eating disorders together. Um, is that there's some time in their, you, you can almost always trace back to some point at which there was restriction or somehow something was taken off the uh, okay to eat list. Um, it's interesting. So Yeah, well, Dr. Price, and- it is so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for uh, contributing this excellent information. Um, you're just so good, so great at what you do, and we're so excited to have you back. And I want to put a, another Thank plug you. into your book, No More Screen Time, uh, which is on another topic. And we'll have Dr. Price return as a fellow parenting psychologist and part of our team, Parenting Doctors. So um, any last words? 
No, I'm <laughs> thankful for the conversation. So well, it's good talking to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. And this is Dr. Daniel Van Ingen with this week's big time show uh, at the Parenting Doctors. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>